Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Inside the GM Studio, a podcast all about the tabletop RPG hobby, mostly centered for the game masters out there, but the players, fucking, you're great. Don't let anybody ever tell you anything else. I'm your host, Matt. I am David. You're not great. Not all of you. Some of you suck. <laughs> uh, None of the yeah. listeners of this podcast, though, they're all great. Ah, uh, the voice of reason. <laughs> but, uh, so, uh, I wanted to bring up right at the front, because we've touched on this before, but we've never had like a full episode on uh, perspective of the game. So the other day, we had a, it was kind of a pickup session. We couldn't do our normal Saturday night for the D&D game, so we played Friday night. And we brought in Cody, we brought in a new player, Mm -hmm. and at the end... I felt myself, and according to everybody else, they all thought it was a good game. We all had a good time that night. There was nothing real exciting, really. You know, there was no combats and there was no big social encounters. But there was a lot of information being thrown around and there was a lot of things to do. But Dave felt like the timing was off or he wasn't hitting those, you know, hitting those buttons when they should have been hit. And... This happens a lot because I do the same thing when I'm GMing. I'll feel at the end, I'm just like, God damn, that thing was fucking horrible. That was shit. And especially because I do con games or if I do one-offs online, when I feel that way, I'm just like, fuck, I just ruined these guys' entire time. Then they come up to me afterwards. I'm like, that was great. That was fantastic. I'm like, how the fuck was that good? But uh, I thought that's something that we could bring up for a little bit and talk about uh, because I'm sure there's GMs out there that have this all the time, but they never get the response from the players as often as we might be able to, since we have a home game, but what is it when we were playing on Friday, what was it that made you feel like you didn't do great? I guess the best word I could use to describe the way I felt the game went was clunky Mm -hmm. that, um, basically, I guess I'll draw an analogy to writing. There's an axiom in writing that direct information is the best, right? This is kind of show, don't tell. Mm -hmm. So if I'm writing a news article, which I do, and Matt expresses a strident opinion or emotion about something that I'm writing about, it is best to put what it is he says in direct quotes and use his voice, his words, his cadence. That's the best. However, you can't just have a news article that is just all quotes from people, right? It's like one quote after another. It's kind of that makes it even weird and clunky. So it's like, okay, I'm not, why, what are you offering here? So, If you can't do that, perhaps someone is overly long-winded. Perhaps they're not great with words, so they have a biting criticism or they have a um, a glowing review of something, but they just don't really use colorful language. Like if I were quoting Patrick or something, it was was pretty good. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I really liked it. You know, it's like, (laughs) this is kind of like, man, it's kind of flat. Then the best alternative to direct quotation is paraphrasing. So if 
Matt said something like, I really like the way the game played out. I thought there was a good mix of a variety of different encounters. And the things that happened in the adventure were fairly interesting to me. I remained engaged and uh, the dynamic between the players was fruitful and interesting to me, right? And that's not a super great direct quote. And also I could probably just some, like I could paraphrase what you said by saying something like Matt lauded the game's pacing, characterization, and character dynamics, comma, saying that it all contributed to a cohesive game, right? It's mm -hmm. shorter. It encapsulates the general spirit of what it is that you said and doesn't really put words or feelings in your mouth. That's better than the third option, which is what you call summarizing. Summarizing would just be a very high level view of what was talked about. Matt talked about his good experience with the game. It's a summary, right? It doesn't, you, you want a summary when you're reading a movie synopsis or something like that. The dusk jacket of a book, dust jacket of a book. You want a summary, but not when you're reading a novel, not when you're reading a news article. If it's not direct quotation, it should be paraphrasing to the best of your ability, which means I can say this better in fewer words with better language than the speaker did. And if the speaker can say things still in a very succinct way with good language, then it's better to use their words because it's their voice. It's their emotions. It's their things that impacted them and it resonates with the reader more. But if they're not particularly being super interesting, then can I say it in fewer words with more impact and get on with the rest of the story? Mm -hmm. That's better. Summarizing is a no-go. So this is a very long-winded way of saying that I felt like there was too much summarization in the game. I summarized what was happening. And every time I tried to pull it in the direction of direct uh, interactions, which so in the D&D world, uh, a summary might be something like the party packs up its gear and travels to the town, right? That's really fucking boring. A paraphrase <laughs> yeah. would be something that we would typically call like a travel montage, or perhaps it's uh, a little high level, but maybe I do the things where I kind of pull the players in, you know, Matt, you see something along the path along the way and the party does X, Y, or Z, what happens? I'm pulling you in a little more. And, and the more of the direct quote route would be to just handle it all in real time to handle mm -hmm. it in an encounter, right? Instead of saying, Matt, you go to the, you go to the bar and you secure a room for the evening. That's a summary. Matt, you go to the bar and you come in and you notice this surly dwarf behind the counter. He comes up and in, in a gravelly voice inquires, you know, what it is you're doing there? You respond in turn with, well, well, Matt, me here and my party members are looking for a, uh, a room for the night. Uh, you have a little bit of banter back and forth, uh, and then eventually you settle on a price that seems amenable to you. He tells you that meals are included, 
you exchange gold and you walk away fairly happy, right? That's paraphrasing. Uh, a direct quote would be, you walk into the tavern and there's a surly old dwarf behind the bar. What do you do? And then you go up and you have dialogue and we have dialogue back and forth. That's better. But you also, for the terms of the pacing of the game, you acknowledge that you can't do that with everything, right? Because right, if you do right. it with everything, we've talked about this before, it just gets really boring. Um, yep. But if you go too far up where it just seems like you're summarizing everything that's happening, it doesn't really feel like an interactive game so much as you're just kind of sitting there while someone is telling you a story of what's going on. And I tried to kind of like switch gears between those three levels. Um, and I guess I just felt like the transitions weren't as great. Like I, I started doing it a little bit like, oh, let's just have the party have a little bit of interaction here and, and, and a little bit of role playing. And then I was like, I had it in my head as, as one often does when they're running a game. Here's my end point. You have a, you have a, a cliffhanger that you want to get to, and then you have kind of a safety one, right? Typically. And mm -hmm. so I was realizing for terms of pacing, I might not get to where I need to, like even my, even my backup cliffhanger, I might not get to it if I just allow the players to kind of role play through everything. And especially because again, to our, our whole notion of like cutting out shoe leather, none of this is really all that pertinent to the plot and it isn't action oriented and it isn't super engaging. So I want to get to the stuff that is, but I also so I was kind of at a high level and then I kind of tried to pull it back down and pull it a little bit more back down. And I just felt like I was all over in scope and that made the whole session feel fairly clunky to me. And I suspect part of what the reason it was is that initially for this session, I usually plan out two or three sessions in advance and I kind of go here are the cliffhangers that I want for each session. And here's kind of where I'm going to start. Remember previously we had ended where you guys were trying to gain entrance to the Academy and I was on the fence about whether just to start the next session at the shrine of Savernus, right? And mm -hmm. we had talked about the pros and cons of that. And then I kind of went back to the drawing board and I was like, okay, I'm not going to just pluck up the party and start them at the shrine of Savernus, but I am going to kind of like give a little bit of paraphrasing, a little bit of summarizing and I, and that session, I did what I had set out to do. That initial act of like where we left off before we got to the Shrine of Savernus, I thought was tight. I thought it was a good paraphrasing, involved the party a little more. There was a little bit of intrigue, but we still got to the Shrine and the action fairly quickly. This time I had intended to end, um, or I should say previously, I had intended to just start the party at the lighthouse and just do a summary, a quick like five minute summary of how the party got from the shrine of Savernus to the lighthouse to just cut out all that fucking shoe leather between because I thought it was just, okay, there's a few expositional things. Maybe I might involve the PCs a little bit to allow them to, to make a couple of roles or for you to kind of pull at your noble background to, to leverage how to like learn about these manifests and where it led you. But generally speaking, I just wanted to start, at the lighthouse. But the problem with that is we introduced Cody this week and I like for purposes of like not having a super contrived plot where the party starts at the lighthouse and he's just there. And then we kind of have to explain why he's there. And that seems really shoehorned and silly. I was like, well, I don't want to do that. I think we can still get to the lighthouse, but then 
the addition of a new character, especially one that is keen to do a decent amount of legwork as to like why he's there, how he's interacting with the party. And it was like, okay, I need to handle that in character where they have to have some dialogue. I, I felt like I kind of cut some of that short, like at the right I time. You yeah, like, I agree. It was like, okay, that. right. There was some role playing and then I, I kind of cut it short. Like, okay, we're just going to handle, you're going to talk the rest of the night and here's kind of how it's going to go. Um, but I guess I felt like I was kind of hurrying to that lighthouse cliffhanger. And so I, I it just felt really clunky. The ship, um, the ship voyage. I hit a couple of beats that I wanted to with Patrick and the stowaway with Beto and his dream, the random thing of the guy falling overboard, um, forecasting that there was going to be a big storm only to have it kind of like fizzle out. Those things were all interesting. Um, but maybe there was some stuff I could have tightened up and, and cut out, but I just didn't have a good, I wasn't prepared to have to do that. And so it just felt really clunky, but yeah, like I talked to Cody after the game and talked to you guys at the end of the game and everybody was like, I thought it went great. And I was like, well, they didn't mm-hmm. say great, but I thought it went really well is what most people said. So I guess give me your perspective as to, that didn't come through that clunkiness or what, what saved it for you, I guess. No, I think there was only that one time when Cody was introduced and we got to the lighthouse, it did feel like we were in and out of there super quick. Um, I thought there was going to be a little bit more, but it doesn't mean that there, we can't always return. Uh, but that was the only part that I felt like you kind of cut it as quick as possible. Everything else seemed like good spot on. We got a lot of information. Uh, I had a lot of fun with the role play that happened. Uh, I thought Cody's introduction was actually really good, mm-hmm. even though I don't feel like my character did a good enough job of kind of like vetting a new prospect for the team. He just <laughs> kind of showed up and he was just like, I think I can help you guys out. I'm kind of on the same little, uh, adventure that you are all on and i was just like mm-hmm, cool yeah we teased Everybody you about that could... we teased you about that after because um so to give the listeners some context like cody's character is a tiefling and he is kind of like this demon hunter and he has this background that's a little bit shadowed in mystery but he's been tracking the party because he believes that the party's kind of goals are aligned to him and so he just kind of like inserted himself into the party and when he did, Matt's character was like, sure, yeah, we're on the same page. Come along. And Patrick's character was all the way on the other end of the spectrum, which is Patrick is like casting detect thoughts and is like hyper, hyper skeptical of him, even though like in a meta sense, he knows that this is a new player in the group and yeah. he knows that they're likely he's likely an ally, but he's treating him almost the way he would treat an NPC, which is to be kind of skeptical of him because mm-hmm he's a skeptical character and he's a very process driven character, which is like, I'm going to vet this to make sure that we are getting the thing on the tin. And Cody was talking about his, I just like, I love that. I love that quality in Patrick when it comes out because it's, it's just so counterindicated to what most people do in a meta sense. And I was like, well, we need some of that in the party because Matt is basically like, Oh, you're a drow with like a poison dagger. And you like, you like are an assassin. Like come, you're probably a good dude. Like yeah. come on in the party. Why not? It's like, it's like, oh, okay. Well, yeah, no reason to be know. any skeptical of anyone. It's like, 
when I created this character and why I love this character is I've done a really good job building him to be Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. Like everything about him is he uses deduction to pretty much be a mind reader mm-hmm. and he can read people really fucking well. Like I got a really great insight and yeah. all this other stuff. So when I keep going into it without thinking about it, I'm just like, oh, I know it's Cody's character. I know he's going to work out well. Maybe it was just the back of my mind saying, of course, your character would know this shit. Otherwise, I should have been, you know, doing whatever I can to try to, you know, dissect him and find out who this guy really is because he just showed up out of nowhere with no other information. But and I was yeah, just like, fucking here we go. Let's do you this. Didn't, you didn't allude to the fact that like, well, my insight's probably good enough to tell that no. he has like good intentions or anything like that. You're just playing a character that is typically in line with your sensibilities, which is like, you know. And that's part of the reason it's funny to hear you say that you were expecting a little more drawn out interaction with Cody's introduction, because I always have you in mind. The reason that Matt is always like, sure, come on into the party. Let's go. Because he's like, let's get on with the fucking adventure. We don't need like mm-hmm. a like an hour long, like role playing in character between characters that we already know is a foregone conclusion that his goals are aligned with ours. That can be fruitful sometimes and tease out important character elements as it did with Patrick's kind of skepticism and kind of communicates overtly and even subtextually that, Hey, I'm not the kind of guy that takes things at face value. You know, I pick at things and I, and I want to have a high degree of certainty that it, it is the thing on the 10 and you probably could have done a little better to kind of communicate overtly to the rest of the party that look, I'm not just I'm not just allowing this guy into the party because it's expedient in a meta sense, but my guy is like, you're, you're not getting one over on me as far mm-hmm. as um, your motives typically, because I am almost arrogantly confident in my ability to understand what motivates people in a particular scenario. And now, especially that you have a couple of party members in your corner, it's like, you're not getting one over on me. And even if you do, like I have like this big fucking dragonborn guy over here, just rip your arms off. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. care. Right. So I, it was a little weird because generally you're, you're kind of like, let's get on with it. Let's go. Let's go. Come on. Let's, let's, we got to get out of here. Like even Cody was like, it was weird that like Matt was like so keen to just go right to the lighthouse when he just like bought these rooms for like several nights. We might not even stay there the first night he paid for it, but it's like, yeah, that's just how Matt typically is. Like this is, this is the next Mm -hmm. leg of the plot. Let's get onto it. And so I was trying to one, incorporate a new character Two, I'm always, always cognizant of involving Mike in the game, because if I hadn't have introduced the little like arm wrestling thing, like with the guy as a little role playing thing, I mean, Mike sat there and really said very, very little and did very, very About little 15 words the entire night. Yeah. And so I'm always aware that like, man, I kind of got to get to like the meat of like something that involves him and that is actionable for him because there's no way he's just enjoys sitting here like all this character shit and all this like plot stuff Mm -hmm. and exposition. He's just like, come on, come on, man, let's get to let's get to something cool, right? Something where like I can shine. And that's a perfectly reasonable request, even though it's not explicitly stated, but I'm trying to accommodate a variety of different players. It seems as though Patrick and Beto to a lesser degree, don't mind as much exposition. You don't tend to mind as much kind of like in character role playing. Cody is, is seemingly fine with most of it. Like he finds some there, there and Mike's needs things to be a little more action oriented. So I was trying to balance the pacing 
And I think just throwing a new character into the mix kind of threw me for a loop. And I ended up feeling like I summarized more than I should have instead of Uh, pulling the players into the plot at the junctures where they could have and I where I could have and probably sacrificed a little bit of texture and description in a micro way. There, there were elements that I liked that turned out the way I wanted, like the journey back to the town from the shrine of Savernus, I thought went pretty well. I was like, okay, that was kind of a good start. Like it was cool. I involved the characters. I thought I gave you a good sense of the time of year and the texture of the land. And then, but the whole ship journey probably could have been a little better staged, I guess there was like an encounter in there where a guy, you know, fell overboard and drowned and I um, actually died. And so like the party risked their lives to Mm -hmm. save a corpse. (laughs) Well, one of those, that part right there gave me as well as me wanting to go to the lighthouse that night is I wanted to start going on uh, to start with. My character has nothing but confidence in himself and what he does. But recently, since the death of his oldest friend recently, you know, while he was there kind of hit him hard and he went through a thing, getting back into it. And now this guy that he tried to save died at, you know, when he couldn't save him and uh, it's starting to get to him. And now he's realizing that he might not have all the answers for everything and he might not be smart enough to actually figure this out and save people the way that he wants to. And now he's second guessing a lot of his choices. And that's one thing I thought if they wanted to really press on me on why should we go there tonight, we could get there at dark and it'll be really dangerous. And I thought we could get into that. That's kind of like the, that's where I'm going with the character right now is that he's starting to second guess his abilities. Well, that's, yeah, that's interesting. I wouldn't have necessarily, uh, because again, this is just your MO as a player, as a general rule, Mm -hmm. like it was kind of there to push the plot forward. And because some characters can and will spin their wheels about stuff. Um, and I don't know if you're able to sense this, but I'm starting to get really beleaguered with the whole, like, Oh, I wanted to like sell this thing and this thing and like whatever. I was like, I'm not handling that. Just okay, fine. This yeah. is how much gold you get. I don't like, yep. whatever, man. Like it's just I started doing that too though. Any unless you really wanted to haggle for something really important or that's really worth something, then maybe we'll work something out. But other than that, everything's half book price. This is how much you get. Yeah. Yeah. It's if like, you want to sell how- shit or buy shit, unless it's again something really expensive and important. No, just Get whatever the fuck you want. Sell what you want. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. And unless a shopkeeper or an interaction is likely to yield something that is pertinent to the plot, or at the very least interesting, uh, I'm just I'm glossing over it. I don't have any time yeah. for shopping in the game. It's just, Embeto is just so. I tried to explain to Cody that we tried to do the sundry item thing, and it was like Beto really just doesn't what he wants to keep track of every fucking mm-hmm. matchstick on his person. And he's just like, okay, I have all this stuff. And like, you know, I have this thing. He's like, oh, he's like, he's worried he's going to miss out on like a few gold pieces. I take this like girdle. I'm like, it's a, it's a girdle, dude. It's a leather girdle. Yeah. But what's it worth? Is it magical? I'm like, look, dude, like, did you, you already picked it up and examined it. If you had any instincts about whether it was super valuable, 
I would have described it as, I don't know, with gold filigree or studded with gems or had arcane symbols on it or something. But like, I, I don't remember doing that. I just remember saying it was a girdle. Like, And you, strangely, the silverware was likely worth more because there was 25 pieces of silverware, which are made of silver. So they're worth like a couple silver pieces a piece. And it was like, but he didn't see the need to take that. And I was like, okay, it's really weird. Like, I just don't, I just, I, I'm just kind of getting away from big treasure troves for that reason. I just don't, it's like, okay, I'm just going to have like a few things. Like if you get like one thing, that's really fucking cool. Then you have one thing that like represents like, we just went and got this gold cup from this treasure trove. And it's yeah. like worth like a thousand gold pieces. Then, then maybe we can play through you selling it or trying to offload it or something or you know i was wondering because i knew the um the temple that we went to was from sunless citadel mm -hmm. i think that's where it was from and i know that that mm -hmm. bell up there no it's from um the lost mine of fandelver actually the one with the bell yeah that's in oh no i'm sorry it's in the dragon of ice fire peak that's it because i knew that bell was made of gold or it had like a gold something about it yeah and i was gold. wondering if we ever checked it out if you would have said that yeah it's gold of course we have no way to fucking take it with us but yeah well the last would it be, you know something that big well yeah because in the narrative of the previous the adventure where that map is native to the lore of it is that Orcs raided a city to the just outside of where the shrine is, and everybody fled to the shrine with all of their wealth because they knew the orcs were coming. And so what they did to hide their wealth is they went and they melted all of the gold in the town down and they forged it into this bell and hung it up in there to hide it. And in the previous time I used this map and Dragon of Ice Fire Peak, the party did find it. Um, mm. And it was unbelievable to me that they found it. And moreover, that they actually it was pretty cool because what happened was uh a former player of ours, Chris Davis, he was like, oh, I want to, you know, he, Mike's character climbed up there and he's like, okay, I'm up here now. And then Chris was like, okay, so he helps me up. And he was like, okay, so how, I'm like, okay. He's like, so I want to get this bell down. I'm like, okay, how are you going to do that? He's like, um, I don't know. How is it fixed up there? I'm like, I don't know, like a bell. I've never seen a bell. Like it's fixed up there, man. Like it's, he's like, well, like I, he's like, well, I'm a Smith. And I'm like, okay. He's like, well, I have Smith's tools. Could I use the Smith's tools to get it down? And I was like, yeah, sure. Do a check, right? So he does a check. The ball, the bell comes clanging down. He's like, all right, I cast a tensor's floating disc on it, and I'm just going to carry the bell back to town. And I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. And I was like, I wonder where he's going with this. So he's like, he had this whole plan. He's like, I go back to town, and I'm a Smith, right? So like, I know people in the Smith's Guild. I'm a guild artisan, right? I can avail myself to people's stuff. I'm like, sure. Yeah, I guess he's like, I'm going to go talk to the blacksmith and see if he'll let me use his forge. And I'm like, okay. So what he did is he talked to the blacksmith. He let him use his forge and he crafted this thing that basically like once he melted the bell down would just cause it to like solidify into a bunch of gold bars. And then he just had a bunch of gold bars and then he stacked those up in a fucking sack and he hit it. And then the party died. So that's still sitting there somewhere <laughs> in the world. But but I thought that was really kind of neat. And I was like, oh, but yeah, no, the bell was not there this time. So because um, I didn't want to have that. I mean, it was neat, but I was like, yeah, I don't know that it, it wouldn't yeah. be neat the second time around. So. All right. Well, uh, before we move on, I wanted to bring up uh, something that I saw in the news today. All right. Uh, so Wizards of the Coast 
as much as I give them shit for a lot of things that they do, there's one thing that both David and I talk about what we want from you, Watsy. The one thing we want more than anything from you, other than new additions and new this and new that, we do want one new thing. We want new adventures, but we want high-level adventures. And they're finally doing that. I would say with... mid-tier adventures, actually, is what I want. Eh, well, let's see how you feel about this. I wanted to get your uh, your input on this. So, uh, coming out in May, May 21st, is Vecna, Eve of Ruin. Uh, let's see here. So the notorious Lich Vecna is weaving a ritual to eliminate good, obliterate the gods, and subjugate all the world. To stop Vecna, before he remakes the universe, the heroes work with three of the multiverse's most famous archmages, travel to far-flung locales, and rebuild the legendary Rod of Seven Parts. Vecna, Eve of Ruin, is a high-stake adventure in which dungeon masters and players can change the multiverse's fate. This book includes legendary D&D figures, iconic fantasy locations, terrifying new monsters, and more. Uh, so the first thing that comes in, of course, face the Archlich, Archlich Vecna, uh, embark on an epic high-level adventures for characters level 10 to 20, uh, over 30 menacing new monsters, 32 new maps. Uh, this is what kind of got me, because Vec Vecna is doing this, and Watsi is doing this whole multiverse thing, Journey to over six iconic D&D locations across the Forgotten Realms, including Planescape, Spelljammer, Eberron, Ravenloft, Dragonlance, and Greyhawk. So, I like that it's 10 to 20. That's great. That's fantastic. That's a nice long, you know, campaign if you want to do it. But, man, the multiverse stuff that they're trying to get into is really, I don't know how I feel about that. It's, it's, the, it's the hot new thing. It's I guess no matter where it is, you just turn and it's just the multiverse. And it's I mean, at least in D&D, &D, my biggest criticism of it in, in in film and the MCU seems to be that it is a crutch for lazy writing. You don't like that Tony Stark is dead. Well, luckily, there's a world in which he never died at all. And so we mm -hmm. can bring him back. And it's like, OK, so that's so in other words, there's really no stakes at all. Like you can just have legacy characters you can have things like what if it didn't go this way I, I think the the what if um show probably handles it fairly well like that's kind mm -hmm. of that's cool and if by multiverse you mean that there is a variety of different worlds and realities that overlap at certain points and you can kind of go into them and that's just expanding the world um but if you mean like in a we see how messy it gets with timelines just just look at the fucking terminator franchise like it just gets yeah. to be a clusterfuck of a mess and it just never really works because we don't really know how to conceptualize it's like trying to conceptualize like oh like it's a 3d line and you're like what do you mean a line is one dimensional like, like no it's <laughs> but it's a three-dimensional line it's like but but that's not a thing that's so it's a plane no it's not a plane it's a i was like i don't know how to like conceptualize like time in that way like in a in a multi everything happening all the time everywhere everything everywhere all at once it's like so it's <laughs> like it's just it, it might be able to work like in that movie where it's just like a short contained thing but over a long campaign if you're involving the concept of time 
as well as differing worlds, then it gets to be an issue for logistics and involving a variety of different worlds also kind of mucks with the tone. Like you're okay. So you're in Dragonlance. It's like high fantasy politicking. And then it's Ravenloft. It's like a grim and dark horror. And then it's like forgotten realms, kind of more the baseline, uh, you know, lost worlds scenario. But then you, you also have Eberron where it's kind of like a steampunk sort of thing. It's like, well, how do all the interplay off these worlds work? It's not enough to have one world in peril. We have to have, several worlds in mm-hmm. payroll and so i'm with you in the skepticism on that um and 10 to 20 does touch on some of the levels i wish were more encapsulated my big issue with oh, why i don't like um why i wish there were more mid-tier adventures is that i'm just tired of being locked into a campaign and it seems like you're either you choose one of two things you choose a campaign and it goes from level one to 10 or one to 15 and you're locked in for 15 levels or it's a short adventure and it takes you from levels one to four. And then there's really no follow up on that. You have to kind of just do your own thing. And so this is 10. So it gets some of those levels, but then it takes you all the way to 20. It's like, I, I want more adventures that are three to four levels that aren't levels one to three or four. Like, give me a five to eight adventure. Give me a eight to 12 adventure. Give me a 15 to 17 adventure. They don't have any of that. It's like you, you, whatever level, like, okay, so you had a one to 10 situation and now the same character starting a new campaign and one adventure is going to take you from level. It's a campaign, you know, it's like one thread. What if you didn't, what if you wanted a bunch of differing adventures what if level one to ten actually was three plot arcs for you it was Mm -hmm. levels one to four it was four to eight and it was eight to ten it was three plot arcs three adventures and now you're just like ten to the rest of the campaign is one adventure one arc like i don't like the idea of having to be locked into that and it's like at lower levels it seems like they're fine to give you a three or four level adventure but it's like once you hit level five you're just like, if you start something, you're going to like at least level 15 or 16 or 17, yeah. like most likely 20. And it's like, but surely you could have more of the variety of like short, not even short, like a three or four level adventure to me, in my view is a normal length adventure. <laughs> like That's normal three to four levels and maybe five or six levels is a kind of long adventure. And then, you know, if you're getting past that, then you're just talking about, well, this is just one thread for an entire campaign you get locked into the cody talked about this running the dungeon of the mad mage or whatever the predecessor Mm -hmm. to that is um there's dungeon of the mad mage is the follow-up to dragon heist i think oh yeah uh yeah dragon heist so it's like dragon heist water deep dragon heist yeah right and so it's like one to three and like okay great and then it's like three to the forever it's like and he's like forever right and he was like okay i i did that And he's like, and like three levels in, I was like, just not into it. He's like, I'm not into this multiplex 20 level dungeon. It's too much. It's like, especially when you're talking about like, it's one dungeon. So you're, you're going to be seasoned adventurers by the end of it. And you've only ever gone on one really protracted dungeon crawl. Yeah. And that doesn't really jive with the notion that adventurers 
have a variety of adventures and a variety of experiences and see lots of parts of the world and experience different monsters. It's like, no, no, you just went on one really, really big like adventure and that's, that's it. You're, you know, uh, an adventurer should be more like a seasoned veteran of multiple tours of duty overseas, not just one guy that went to war for 15 years. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. This is weird. Right. And, so I, I don't know. I'm with you. I'm kind of skeptical on one portion of it, but it's good to see that they're introducing uh, campaigns that that you know don't start at level one or four yeah. and go beyond. Yeah, I and the only real thing that I'm like, well, because first of all, the rod of seven parts is always that one magic item that's been used in lots of adventures in the past, mm-hmm. and it's always yeah. been kind of my favorite to do, uh, just because that's like the one trope that I really enjoy is finding those MacGuffins to make the big the big weapon to fight the the big bad evil guy at the mm-hmm. end. That and um I want to find out who the three uh you know the heroes work with three of the multiverse's most famous archmages. So it's gotta be like Elminster well, I was gonna and... say it's gotta be Mordenkainen, Elminster And then who's another Rasslin. one from a different who's another one oh. from a different yeah, I don't know. It, it just seems like they're trying to pull every yeah. bit of fanfare they can. Like, yeah. we want to have Strahd, and we want to have, you know, all these guys from Greyhawk, and we want to have these guys from Dragonlands, and it's just like, and Drist will be in there somewhere, and it's just like, dude, seriously? <laughs> like, why does this need to be this ridiculously epic? But, I mean, uh, presumably there's a market for it if if they're bothering, but I don't know. There well, seems yeah. to be a divide between what Wizards thinks people want and what people want (laughs) yeah yeah you know they they brought up greyhawk a few different times and the only Mm -hmm. thing from greyhawk that they have is when they brought up mordenkainen with that one book mordenkainen's Uh, whatever the fuck tome of foes um i think the ghosts of the salt marsh is a greyhawk adventure oh is it Uh uh-huh originally it was and i think the the redux does take place in the world of greyhawk but they've not they haven't had like a Greyhawk Gazetteer, I think, since second edition. Yeah. It hasn't really been a, because it's just like Forgotten Realms is kind of close and they kind of, whatever, it's just different gods and different history, but the texture of it is pretty much the same. So, um, you know, Dragonlance is more, if you want a little more Lord of the Rings kind of Game of Thrones style, and then the other ones kind of carve out a pretty good niche. Uh, so, yeah, I just, it just seems like they're trying to, pull in too much for the sake of fanfare instead of just dialing in what it is they they need oh speaking of different games um i think that i might go uh run a game at a game shop this next week so really uh, yeah they're i I mean i quit my job so i'm not working right now other than doing freelance writing and i was like well maybe i'll just come in on tuesday and you know they always are like yeah we always need dms and they were like, we do Adventurers League and maybe I'll run Adventurers League thing and maybe try to get like a another like small group or whatever together, like in person. I was thinking, nice. oh, meet, meet some new people, get some new players, kind of test my chops at something else. So it's always then good. Get but, that uh, in-person table itch scratched. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. I mean, I, I might opt not to, but I'm just tentatively I'm planning on doing that. So I'll let you know how it goes next week if I do. Nice. Oh, yeah, definitely. Let me know how that goes. I'm interested. But uh, let's get on to. So I have talked about in the past, the one thing that got me super fucking hooked into tabletop RPGs 
was the death of an NPC, just mm. an NPC party member. His death happened and it didn't hit me hard. It was, it was David's brother. It hit him hard, or at least his reaction was enough for me to be like, holy shit, this is, this is something completely different. This is not just a board game. This is something completely different. Uh, and I wanted to talk about not only why NPCs, especially in-party NPCs, are important, but the um, the situations that they are placed in, be it deaths, imprisonments, uh, hell, if they ever turn turncoat, just the uh, what happens with these NPCs and how it can affect the players and how to use those in order to create a good story for our players. Uh, so I would like to say, David, um, I've tried uh, a couple times and I've been successful probably out of the 10 times that I've tried. I've been successful about three or four times uh, really getting people to connect and kind of latch on to these NPCs. Mm -hmm. And I want to know what it is. Well, first of all, I want to know what your thoughts are on in-party NPCs or just getting NPCs close with the players enough so that whatever happens to them is, is a, you know, is effective towards the, towards the group. Yeah. I, we kind of touched on this a little bit about just kind of crafting a memorable NPC, which mm -hmm. is, uh, and it is on topic today because we're at least alluded to the multiverse and the notion of, of consequences, not having permanent ramifications. And one of those would imply anything bad that might happen to a character that the PCs are inclined to care about. And so if an NPC in particular is in the party, but any NPC that's important to the plot is not just a um, plot device like uh, Darwin Miller is really a plot device, right? I mean, mm. he has a little bit of personality, I suppose, but really he's there to kind of tell you the information that you need to know. Same thing with uh, Patrick's Harper agent contact. Um, hopefully they have a little bit of flavor and texture, but they're really there as plot devices to kind of move the plot forward. They're not really NPCs in the real, um, like, cast of characters that mm -hmm. are have competing or not even necessarily competing, but divergent interests, sensibilities and all that. They're just kind of there for the party to query them in the same way that a barkeep is just there to sell you booze. Right. And if it's a bar you go into with some frequency, you might flesh that character out. Um, but generally speaking, if you're going to introduce a character that is an NPC, and especially if they're an NPC member that's in the party, they shouldn't be there if something bad happening to them just rolls off the PC's back. Oh, well, that guy's dead now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, do you find yourself having trouble with that? Uh, not necessarily um, introducing NPCs that have purpose, but ones that your PCs connect with in some way. And so does that leave you not, not um, 
having dramatic things happen to the NPCs because you yes. just get the impression the PCs won't care. One, one. I'll give you one example right now uh, from our D and D campaign <laughs> that for some reason I just don't know when I, when it happened. I was like, oh man, I don't know if I could ever go through with that just because of the emotion that I felt. We'll go with Boar and Shalendra. Okay. So both NPCs that we've come across both have been party members for a short time. Right. But there was the time when we finally got, you know, we figured out where these orbs were and those two gave us an ultimatum. Just like, you help me or I'm fucking out of here or, you know, well, that was just it. You either help me or I'm going to get the fuck out of here because you're all idiots and I hate you. <laughs> and like Boar, in character, my guy is, if we, you know, if you want to stick to alignments, I chose Lawful because he has a sense of honor. Right. And he gave Boar his word that he mm -hmm. would help him. And he's going to stick to, and he stuck to that. He said, no, I gave him my word. But Shalendra, I liked having in the party. I felt she was a very good, you know, a good dy dynamic to our party. Someone to help us out, get in there. And I didn't want, and it was a point that I did. I felt like, God damn, I don't want to hurt her feelings <laughs> even though it's just an NPC, you know, <laughs> but I was just like, I don't want to hurt her feelings, but I can't turn on my boy bore. And I thought about it in my own campaigns. And I was just like, man, I just don't know if I could give that sort of ultimatum where it would make the party actually possibly maybe even split themselves for a time. Mm -hmm. But then I thought about, it, I was like, and that's why it's so fucking good is when you have to do that and you have to give them that ultimatum in order to make it happen. Well, again, it was because you have part of what I was striving for there is we often like to think of the party as one cohesive unit. And that is true, especially for the PCs, um, because the PCs exist within the context of this party and likely have left most of their lives and allegiances behind but anyone assimilating into the party or even brushing up against the edges of the party if you can give them or at least give the impression that they have a life and values and allegiances outside of the, the party itself that's a setting setting the stage for some sort of good conflict so Bohr had assimilated into the party and was a party member but because his goals aligned with yours for the time being, he wasn't in the party long enough for there to be a strong sense of solidarity. He's kind of mm -hmm. like a, a rental trade in a, in a sport, right? Where it's like you pick up a guy at the trade deadline, his contract expires out at the end of the year. So you pick him up to help the team and like, you know, into a playoff run. But you know that once that playoff run is done, he might just very well sign with another team and he might not be along. It's not the same thing as like the captain of your team. And so he's for lack of a better word, kind of a free agent. And what I tried to do is show that like, as a member of the Emerald Enclave, he kind of had an allegiance and he had a life before he met the party and he was just aligning himself with the party for this particular goal. But his ultimate goal and his ultimate allegiances and connections don't really involve the party directly. Then you have Shalendra who was not a member of the party but had a lot of like um, direct impact on the plot. The plot affected her 
more than it affected Boar. And so she had a vested interest because the plot affected her. And so you can't help but feel for her that like this is like a thing that directly affects her her legacy and her home and her family lineage and all this. And so she wants to kind of be involved. But what I did is just kind of made those things two like mutually exclusive things that the party had to decide upon. And Mm -hmm. that creates, it forces the party to kind of understand like what they prioritize and also forces them to kind of sort out how they feel about different NPCs. And so, and it's because they realize that they're like at least hinting at having some fleshed out personality and values that are independent of the party. So that only worked because Boar hadn't been in the party that long. And, and that Shalendra was so entwined in the plot. Um, so you kind of had these two things like he was in the party, but not that long. And she was entwined in the plot and kind of vying for a spot in the party, at least temporarily. So I felt that there was a good balance of like, uh, decision-making that it could have gone one way or another. Like you could have chose one over the other, but they were mutually exclusive. When you have that sort of tension and that sort of dichotomy, then it means the players are thinking about what matters to them, thinking about what kind of characters they are, what kind of relationships they want to establish in the world. And in which case it gives them impact and nothing really dramatic happened with either of them. It wasn't like a big blow up or anything. Um, but it had the seeds for it. And if you plan on keeping them around, like Shalendra is still like kind of doing her own thing, but I could pull her back into the plot. So this kind of goes to one of the best tactics is if they're not going to be in the party, they need to have repeated exposure. You don't Mm -hmm. want to have a PC that there's just repeated exposure, that it gets stale where it feels like you don't want to have new PCs or NPCs in the um, plot especially if the party is changing locales, then there's going to be new characters. But bringing other characters back when it's appropriate because it it fits into the plot, giving them repeated exposure and letting them know that they've kind of been doing their own thing allows the PCs to kind of like respect them and then get affection for them. And if they're in the party, then it's just kind of baked in that there's going to be repeated exposure. So what you need to be doing is ensuring that they're not just there as a tool. They're not just like a mount or something, right? That they right. do something that's worthwhile. And part of that is how useful their skill set is, but also are you talking in character? Are you like trying to avail yourself to small moments with with the PCs and get to know them? We've spoke before about how NPCs are a great sounding board to get character stuff out of PCs and also a good way to kind of push the plot forward. Uh, And I am in this campaign right now, I kind of removed any party NPC for the time being because I wanted to take off those training wheels of the plot and dialogue and try to see how that went. Um, Mm -hmm. Did it, let me ask you this. So Boar has just kind of like, he basically just kind of disappeared. Like he's gone. Did you find yourself giving a shit or has it not been long enough? Did you just like, okay, well maybe he's just kind of roguish and he just kind of goes his own way and maybe we'll cross paths someday. Or were you kind of like, huh, I wonder what's up with him. So at the end there, right before he left and hasn't come back, uh, 
between him and I and my character, I should say, it ended not great. Um, him and I, well, he really had words for me talking about how I wasn't the person that he thought I was. And he just didn't have the the same forethought or he didn't have the same look onto me as he once did. Mm-hmm. And for me, I thought, okay, I was going to play this up because this was also right after Rob left and Tom died. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, I'm going to just play this up that, you know, oh, he's just, you know, he hates me as well because I let another person die. I was going to play that up, but then he just kind of fucked off. Yeah. And it hasn't been brought up yet, but I was going to have a thing where my character did feel like it is a part of my fault that he left at the moment because he felt like I probably didn't have his back as much as I, <clears throat> I originally said I would. Mm-hmm. And now my word isn't as good as it used to be. My, my honor and the word that why once thought really meant something has been tarnished. It needs to be something that I need to re redo. And that is when we kind of created Darwin, Darwin Miller a little bit. Mm-hmm. And now this is the, another thing going from an actual, uh, an interest in a DM created P- NPC and then kind of more of a player NPC creation yeah. that I've become very attached to. It's well, I, I really liked that dichotomy because one, it was just like basically two interactions with NPCs, which is like kind of a good way to like allow you to have be like self-sustaining and have an arc that doesn't really have to do with the overall plot of the adventure. But I like that you introduced that character or kind of flesh that character out as a way to almost cope with some other like this situation with boar. And in particular, maybe this came through or maybe it didn't, but um, if boar comes back into the, into the crux of the adventure at any point, it will likely be that he has kind of learned some things. So initially when he came into the party, he really looked up to you. He really kind mm-hmm. of, looked up to you as kind of like a a person to you know oh wow and then as his interaction in the party over the course of i guess it was a few days in game time um he kind of started to see some things about you that weren't necessarily things that he aligned with and started to kind Mm -hmm. of be a little more critical of you and in which case now you're kind of more on the level of peers where it was like you kind of treated him almost like your little brother initially. And he fell into that role because you're like a noble. And he just, he kind of thought you were like, you know, like cool and like really insightful, especially after the whole like demonstration of the investigation. Like if you were in the wake of like Sherlock Holmes investigating something, it would be really hard not to think that he was awesome. Right. Like he would just be like, fuck I'm just going to like tag around with this guy and see what's what. Um, but then he saw some different aspects of your personality coming out. And then after like Tom died, you kind of went off the rails and everything. And he was kind of like, okay, maybe not so much with this guy. So now if you ever came back together, it would be more as like peers eye to eye. And especially mm-hmm. because his leaving and his attitude almost kind of like put a mirror up to your character's face. And Darwin Miller was kind of the, the way in which you took some responsibility and coped with that. That's all great character dynamic stuff. And if character, if NPCs are vehicles toward that, then, then they have emotional resonance. I mean, again, I'm reluctant to say like emotional because I'm sure you don't get really upset, but 
Um, but there's some oh, sort no. of punch yeah. and impact. Uh, oh, yeah. So, because, you know, when we're talking about NPC death, we're not really talking about an actual death, just so much as that the NPCs matter to you in a way that if something mm-hmm. bad befell them, it would, it would like matter to you in the context of the adventure. And, and maybe you would even deviate from what was fiercely practical. I really was bummed out that I did not get the opportunity in Curse of Strahd to have Beto make the decision whether he was going to like, like kill Ismark and to come back to realize that arena had been kidnapped and that, um, Esmeralda had been killed. And so I was like, that was, I was like, okay, I'm going to kill off an NPC, force another PC to make a decision for his stated character goal since level one to kill a well-established NPC and another one has been kidnapped precisely because the party kept putting off getting her to safety. There was a lot of consequences tied up in that one scene that I was really bummed we never got to like have play out because I I suspect there would have had a there would have been a lot of punch where the party would have went damn fuck like all this happened while we were gone and Tordek is like wounded you know and it's like like that would have been like super good um but i don't have a way of knowing whether that would have come to fruition do you think it would have had the punch that uh i suspect it would have it all depends on how long esmeralda was with us Mm -hmm. because she was very new yeah um but i think the yeah with bismarck and irena big time i think that would have been a big uh it would have hit a couple people actually yeah uh but yeah, I think if we were able, if you would have been able to keep Esmeralda along, because she was on that track to be mm-hmm. an, a group favorite, yeah. I think it would have had the, uh, it would have had the, um, the side effects or, you know, it would have had that punch that you thought it would. Yeah, I was, because I was on the fence about that too, because I had just introduced her. My plan was to have when you got back from the Amber Temple, that that was going to be what you walked into. And I realized that it, Esmeralda had not been around long enough. She'd have a little bit of flair and the and also the prospect of her being valuable to the party probably would have been something because she was mm-hmm. pretty valuable because she's like a powerful character. Um, but probably wouldn't have had the same punch as Arena and Ismark. And, you know, Tordek being kind of wounded or whatever might have might have had a little bit of uh a little bit of punch. Do you besides like time in and importance to the plot? Do you have any other tactics to try to make NPCs feel important to the PCs? You I said do. you struggled with this. So because I found the only time I found that it really works out, unless you do, he's like you bring in an NPC and he's, you know, really powerful in battle. Okay. You know, everybody's just like, oh, we like this guy because he's strong. I'm like, mm-hmm. all right, that's fine and all. But there's no real connection other than that we like having this guy around because he helps us in battle big big deal um when i go singularly towards other pcs and i make a connection with them with this npc yeah i'll get a reaction from them of course because i've worked on this connection that they have with them but then there's three to four other people that just don't give a fuck and i don't feel like it's enough of a payoff 
yeah. when anything ever happens to this guy because one pc is just like no my friend my good friend and everyone's just like eh, who cares dude we'll just let's go get another one let's go to the bar we'll just get another one there's a bunch of them yeah i i, I understand because a, a an npc can't be all things to the party right yeah uh but i i think your instincts and your tactics are somewhat on is try to um pick one or two NPCs that the NPC might have something in common with. Um, maybe they share a background. And so they kind of talk to them. You know, Boar did that a little bit. He sensed that your, right, or I should say, I tried to do that with Boar, where it's like he sensed kind of your skepticism of like people in positions of power, nobles and guild mm -hmm. leaders and factions and in this organized, like, which is weird because you're, you're a lawful character, but it's more a personal code of conduct. And so yeah. he is like a ranger lives in the wilderness, part of the Emerald Enclave. So he was frequently kind of like talking to you about those things. And so that helps firm up and solidify the PC's worldviews and ideals. Um, that's a good way to do it. Uh, humor is a very good way if somebody that's just yep. kind of funny and lighthearted to be oh, around. Yeah, you always want the the uh, entertaining guy to stick around. Sure, but you it, it also need not be a, as strong as like a worldview or a sensibility. I mean, maybe maybe you're both just warrior classes. Maybe you're both mm -hmm. just kind of dumb, or maybe you both uh, like the ladies, or you like drinking. You know, you you do that or you're you're competitive with each other you're both really competitive so you're always challenging oh, sure. each other to bets or something well you know if you think about it in like movies television shows people that find those characters that they latch onto, and as soon as they're written off or they're killed off of the show or in the movie you know and you feel mm -hmm. it just like damn i really like that guy yeah. just think of it like if you are you're the you're the party fighter you are the bruiser um Think of like uh, in the fuck was that uh, the Mighty Ducks with the Bash yeah. Brothers, yeah. like everybody loved those guys because they are they're the two lunkheads that just go around and fucking they'll you know crush people together and they're just like yeah it's you it's you and me bro yeah it's that's it's lighthearted but on the other end of the spectrum I suspect you could do something similar that would probably be more effective which is there is an instinct to have an NPC, especially an in-party NPC, assimilate well and not rock the boat, right? Not to be the kind of character that causes trouble. Obviously, if there's a, like an NPC is like a fucking murder hobo, he's more of a problem than he is an asset. Mm -hmm. But to what you were saying is like the rest of the characters might not care. Maybe you connect with the barbarian because you know, you're a dwarf and he's a barbarian and you both love drinking. Right. And then maybe the barbarian will in some way, um, feel bad if something negative happens to the NPC, but the rest of the party won't. But I, a good way to make sure that that doesn't happen is to not be so concerned with the NPC having nice guy syndrome if he's if he's really obsequious and he's nice to everybody in the party and he never does he never challenges them he never says anything kind of like snarky or whatever that isn't good like you because the rest of the party need not like this npc but if they one acknowledge that they're a value to the party and they respect them then they will care so it's like maybe maybe he's buddies with one guy but if the NPC is someone of conviction, 
is someone that like, especially if they have high charisma, but if they're a person of conviction, a fictional person of conviction, Mm -hmm. then the same rules apply for someone that is, you know, got a lot of conviction in real life, which is like, they might not like you. They might not agree with your methods or your motives, but they, but they really respect you. And they go like, okay, one, he's an asset to the party because he's competent. He's, he's got skills we need and he's confident and he certainly seems to have his goals aligned with ours. And he's somebody that has principles. And if he has principles or she has principles, then occasionally they will come into conflict with the PC's principles. And you shouldn't shy away from that because it's it's rife for good role playing. This is exactly what happened with Shalendra and Bohr, which is mm-hmm. they had differing principles, which is what made it difficult because I tried to make both of their positions strong positions where it's like you can really understand why. And they and she was not shy about being critical of Bohr and she wasn't even shy about kind of being critical of the party. And and I tried to show a glimmer. I kind of presented her initially as kind of this like icy, um, no nonsense, aloof, you know, noble elf, because that's what she is. But once you kind of got past that a little bit, it wasn't like she didn't, the party rescued her and was trying to like help her family, even if just incidentally, not because they liked her or were trying specifically to help her, but just because they were doing good in the world. And you know, she wasn't super verbose about it and didn't have this big emotional outburst, but she did let the party know like, Hey, I really appreciate it. And like, you know, I, I don't know if I really properly thanked you for like saving my life and like, you know, coming to get me and like, you know, bothering to endeavor to do this dangerous thing that really is very important to me. I know you're not doing it because it's important to me. And, and I think you even like made a, made a quip or whatever to lighten, lighten the mood kind of like that lethal weapon. Like she, she said this kind of heartfelt thing. And I think you were just like, Oh, that must've been hard. <laughs> it must've been yeah. hard for you. <laughs> she was like, it was, it was, it's this, I assume you ripped that from lethal weapon where, uh, yeah. Danny Glover's character thanks Mel Gibson for, for, mm. not, for saving his life. I didn't say, uh, you saved my life. He's like, I bet that was hard. I bet that was really hard. <laughs> like, yeah. So it kind of lightened the moment with a little bit of levity, but it was like, because she was not shy about like letting the PCs know, like, no, like this is my family. And like, what the fuck are you doing? Like running around with this shithead over here. And, and maybe you didn't, maybe you didn't, you didn't end up siding with her, but because you respected her, it still maintained a halfway decent relationship. And she did join the party once Boar had gone and she was there mm-hmm. and, and that probably helped forge a little bit of, of a bond with her. And so she's rife to be brought back. And, and I, I like those things. It kind of gets difficult to, juggle which npcs from the past to bring in and when to introduce new ones do you have trouble with that too i do um because i want to make sure that these npcs matter uh mm-hmm. again just trying to make them that they feel like they matter so if they ever go away that the the party not only just kind of like in the back of their mind they think of them like man if they were here this would be a lot easier but when they show up they're just like fuck yes Finally, you know, y'all, you're back. This is going to be so much better now. Uh, that's something that I always strive for. I always want to be able to do. And I that's one thing I've yet to accomplish. Yeah, because it's I get it. It's a it's a it's a tug of war, right? On one hand, you want to you want to the world to feel alive. And for when the PCs move from one locale to another, 
for there to be a sense of intrigue and adventure. And that comes with new characters. But you also, if you're always just introducing new characters and there's just like tons and tons and tons of characters, then then the PCs have no time to get attached to any of them. And you, right, have, you need yep. to give the ones that that should matter uh, more screen time, so to speak. The more someone is on screen in a film, the more you're likely to give a fuck about them. And especially if they have some sort of gravitas and you can kind of tease apart what it is you like about them. And so you kind of have to balance those those two things where there needs to be, I mean, plenty of things where it's like, introduce too many characters at once we talked about this during our character intro uh episode which is one of the worst types of intro is just a big info dump where there's like a or what they call kind of a parade of characters and Mm -hmm. the suicide squad is a pretty good example of this um it's like fuck man they just like introducing all these like 15 minutes of the movie of just like introducing characters and like their bios and everything it's like man it's too much it's too it's too much man (laughs) it's like it's just it's not a good way to to get anyone invested in the characters. Whereas if you take your time with it, you show the characters in their natural setting to my previous point about about summarizing versus being concrete. The Avengers does this really well. The Avengers takes time with each character in a scene to show them in their environment so that you know some things about them to give them some dialogue and but that does take a really long time. I mean, there's basically 40 minutes of the Avengers, which is just like introducing the team so mm-hmm. that it just cuts both ways. If you want a character to have impact, they need to have a lot of screen time. And if they're not in the party, that's probably pretty hard. Um, so you need to be reintroducing them. But that comes at a direct cost of introducing other NPCs. And if you introduce too many NPCs, then you're also kind of taking away from stage time for the party to interact with one another within the party. So it's all just a real delicate balance that I I don't, I mean, I've been DMing for 30 years or whatever, and I don't know that I've struck that balance to my satisfaction in any campaign. I've had glimmers in certain adventures where I think it's gone very well. Um, but I don't know that I've struck the balance between those two things well enough. One thing I'll put in here before we end, just because I find this fucking hilarious. So my Wednesday group, my work group that we were doing Shadowrun, and now we're doing uh, my my own personal made RPG. They are the kind of role players that they, whenever they meet a new person in the game, any NPC whatsoever, they're just like, what's your name? Where are you from? What you all about? And they will do whatever they can to just fucking get all information from these people. I'm just like, this is just some dude that came to the bar for a drink. I don't have anything. And I just keep coming up with stuff. Yeah. But that because of that, they created one of the greatest NPCs I ever created. You told me that. Yeah. Back back in the Shadowrun game, Ryan, this elf that they just kind of like took under their wing to and made him a part of the team. Mm-hmm. And I think for, I actually no fuck that. I know for a fact, if, if anything had ever happened to him in the game, every single one of them would have reacted the same way I did to Morgan, um, Morgan all the way back in the day in second edition. Yeah. Uh, because they did, they latched on and they, but it was them. I didn't do fuck all really. I just, made this dude up on the spot and then they helped create this character yeah it's uh that they just all latched onto. well because they created it presumably you can kind of oh okay i see there's some there there and you can kind of like give them a little bit of what it is that they want yeah. and because they've latched onto it then it means that they're already invested in the idea of having 
a character that is um important but it's i mean, I mean screen time counts for a lot being there for for troubling moments you know i didn't mention this earlier but characters that are there and offer support or even just experience the the more horrible failures that the pcs might have in the adventure um if something bad happens to them th this notion of shared trauma shared victory is you know uh gives any sort of punch to things uh mm. i mean why is it that why is it that sometimes you can watch a movie and a, one of the main characters something happens to them and you're like i don't yeah whatever i don't care like it, it's like some people like we're at the end of game of thrones or cersei and jamie like i don't care about jamie and cersei was yeah. fucking fuck them right but but for some reason when the horse falls into the bog and fucking never-ending story i'm no, like no no why what? Vortex, like, no right, right it's a fucking horse it's yeah like, <laughs> that, it's because that's good writing and so it's like you i would imagine i would imagine if you can have it have some sort of impact in your game when like a mount goes astray or something then then you that's probably a good exercise like try to think like how could i make something that can't talk yeah have impact? and still have that a much of effect on them yeah so ooh, that's good yeah it's a topic for another day though there you go all right but i think that's gonna be uh that's gonna be it for this week's episode uh all of you out there, let us know what you think about NPCs in your games and what are your techniques whenever you create that memorable NPC that the party just loves and adores and as soon as they're killed off or taken away, all shit goes fucking crazy. Let us know right into inside the GM studio at gmail.com or come in and uh, watch us on our Twitch channel, uh, twitch.tv slash inside the GM studio every Sunday at nine o'clock Eastern and put it in chat. Let us know what you think. But for this week, for Inside the GM Studio, I've been your host, Matt. And I've been David. A good night. <laughs>